This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist. I began podcasting last October, and I'm so delighted you've decided to join me today. We're going to be talking about depression, especially teenage depression, but really this episode has a lot more impact than simply for teenagers. It's for anyone who has struggled with depression, who has been bullied, who's been ignored, who's been manipulated, who's had sexual abuse in their life, and who at times may have often even lost their will to live. If that's you or someone you love, this podcast hopefully will be helpful for you. And why? Because we're going to be talking about the new Netflix series, 13 Reasons Why, what it is, the reactions of other people to it, I actually watched it about now a month ago, and the 13 hours were really, for me, riveting, both fascinating and and haunting all at the same time. Now, I'll try not to spoil things (laughs) for you if you indeed have not watched it and want to, but I am going to be talking about some of the themes that I thought were most prominent in the series. I'm going to mention to you some statistics on childhood and teenage depression that are incredibly surprising and alarming. Then Dr. Michael Yapko, who I've actually been to his seminars several times, he's a great guy. He's an international expert on depression, and he really wants to stress that depression can be learned. We're focused on the genetic inheritance that depression actually runs in families, but there's also an aspect to it that parents need to understand about how depressive behavior can be actually learned, not intentionally, but it will be absorbed. And then, of course, I always want to focus on what you can do about it. And this time I have 10 ideas, suggestions, encouragements to give to you about what you can do if you experience depression and you also have a child who is sad or seems withdrawn or Again, we'll talk about how depression doesn't always look like classic depression. Then lastly, I'm going to read an email from a listener who actually has been diagnosed with depression and bipolar 2 disorder, but who's writing about a pattern of jealousy and backlash in her relationship and what to do about that. Thanks, and I hope it'll be an interesting discussion for you. I'd love actually for you to write me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com and let me know what you thought of the Netflix series, if indeed you've watched it. As a psychologist, I really try to keep abreast of what people are talking about. I actually like to get on my Twitter feed to see what people are talking about. And of course, back in March, I think it was, there was a lot of noise about the Netflix series produced by Selena Gomez on teenage depression and suicide. You know from the very beginning of the series, if you watch it, that their major character, Hannah Baker, did commit suicide. That actually is known from the very beginning. But the same day she died, Hannah sent out tapes previously made to the 13 people she believed had 
lied to her, bullied her, manipulated, even abused her, ignored her, or simply disappointed her. Whatever you walk away believing about Hannah, her friends, or the people she sent the tapes to, her family, or her school, the show makes the point that kids with depression are walking around in plain sight. And we have to be aware. We have to look underneath what may seem to be true. I've read a lot of the accolades about the series. The producer herself, Selena, said that it was a passion project and was meant to be very real. I read, thank God someone is talking about how bullying can have such scathing and traumatic results. Other concerns, however, were it romanticizes suicide. Most of the adults in the show seem out of touch, and that seemed unfair to those people who really are trying to be in touch with teenagers. And then one of the major criticisms of it was that it didn't really talk about depression. There were no actual hotline links after the show. There was a link to their website, but not actually to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. So that was very concerning to some people because suicides can stream in a way. Other kids or other people who are considering suicide may more often, upon hearing about someone else's suicide, take their own life. I worked one time with a teacher who told me actually in his community there were seven suicides within a couple of years, all relatively young people. It was so tragic. But when I think about the series... I think there were three themes that were the most powerful for me. There was a theme of secrecy versus complete lack of privacy. The teenagers kept keeping secrets from teachers, parents, even each other. But all of that had the backdrop of rumor and gossip being fueled by the use of social media to hurt and create scandal. You can take a picture of somebody these days and text it to all your friends, and it's all over everywhere. And of course, this happened in a very cruel way to Hannah Baker. And teenagers are doing that all the time. In fact, one of the comments I read when I did a Facebook Live video about the Mighty was that teenagers had created what they thought were hilarious memes about 13 Reasons Why, making fun, poking fun at the show. Of course, we all know that teenagers laugh at things that they're uncomfortable with. So that was my response. But those memes went all over everywhere very, very quickly. It must be hard for our teenagers to live in that world. The second theme of the series, I think, was about the continued sexualization of young girls. And this led, in the actual Netflix series, to assault. You add alcohol and drugs into the picture, which were also prominent in the series. And girls are still in our culture seen as sex objects rather than for who they are. The third theme was, of course, how tragic it can be when someone doesn't let others know that their will to live is slipping, that they feel overwhelmed with hopelessness and are very disengaged from the impact that their death might have on those who love them. They may even justify to themselves that their suicide would create welcome relief. Now, the characters in the show might be exaggerations, And certainly not every kid's experience of high school is quite this painful, but it is hard for many. So I hope you watch the series. I've got some suggestions a little bit later on. I think it's very worthwhile for parents to watch it so that they'll know the kind of world that their teenager just might be exposed to every day.
And what are the statistics about depression in children and teens? A recent study that was very well done, by the way, using 100,000 kids aged 10 to 17, they self-reported via computer, which actually has been shown to be a little more valid than other ways. People will tell a computer what they won't tell a person. The research found that by the age of 17, 13.6% of boys had experienced depression and a whopping 36.1% of girls. That's one in three girls. I found these figures amazing. And again, this isn't just having the blues or having a bad day. They had to meet the criteria for actual clinical depression. I mentioned Dr. Michael Yapko before. He's known internationally for his work on depression. And I'm going to quote him here. And he says, These data add to the key arguments I've been making for years. When I wrote, Depression is Contagious and Hand-Me-Down Blues. And I pointed to the social and intergenerational risk factors for depression. I also heavily emphasized the need to move away from drugging people, especially kids, and paying closer attention to the social and cultural factors predisposing people of all ages, but especially young people, to depression. Identifying and addressing these risk factors hold the key to my second key point. Prevention is better than mop-up. By the time kids become depressed, the risk factors had already been in place and then gradually gave rise to a first-onset depression. And that's what I think the Netflix series is really good at doing, at showing us what kinds of things predispose a kid to being depressed. Bullying, being seen as a sexual object, not fitting in, moving to a new school and having trouble with that, having parents that are divorced or are just bad parents and are abusive parents or neglectful parents, the anxiety involved in social media being all over the place, pressures felt. I could go on and on. But why do I think it's important for you to watch the Netflix series? And actually, I recommend that you watch it with your teens, if indeed you think they are mature enough for that particular subject matter. It is difficult to watch. But the reason why... I want you to consider it as this. My 22-year-old son said something to me the other day. He said, you know, Mom, when you were growing up, people called each other on the phone. You might not drop by someone's house. You call them first. It would have seemed weird to just show up on their front porch. That's the way my generation feels about calling. We think that's way more intrusive than texting. So we text. You know, I had never thought of that from his perspective. In fact, in many ways, when I first began texting, I found it more intrusive than someone calling me and leaving a a voice message. But it made me think, I wonder how much more I don't get because I'm in a whole different generation than my son. Not because I'm not interested, but because I've underestimated how different our perspectives can be. I'm hoping shows like 13 Reasons Why help people who are parents understand our children's world and to try to stop understanding it using our own generation's norms, but their norms. We need to understand their world. That's why when you watch the show with them, you can listen in on what they say, ask them questions rather than preaching at them about, well, this wasn't this way in my day and I don't get it. If we really look back at our own teenage years, some of these themes did exist But they've taken a different shape now because it's 2017. (laughs) 
Of course, perhaps the most poignant figures in the whole series were Hannah's parents. You know, I've sat in the room with several people whose children have died, sometimes by suicide. And at times I feel like I can barely breathe because the pain is so deep and the questioning is so relentless and endless. It's very hard to know what to say. I thought that was, again, very well acted and portrayed in the series. So what can you do so that you never have that experience yourself? I've got 10 things that I think could be helpful. They're maybe not the only 10 things you can do, but some things that ran across my mind as I watched the show and as I've been a psychologist for a long time. First, if depression runs in your family, talk to your kids about the symptoms and tell them it's okay to talk about it. If you don't know the symptoms, educate yourself and then educate your kids. They've got to know what to look for, right? The word depression may not mean anything to them until it's explained to them that it's when you tend to isolate or when you tend to not want to do things that you really liked doing before. It's not necessarily that you cry all the time or that something particular triggers it. It can be a long, slow decline or it can be a response to something tragic happening. And per Michael Yapko's point, If you're struggling with depression, get appropriate treatment yourself. Show your kids that there's not shame in asking for help. Kids imitate how their parents act. My adult patients tell me that if their mother's or father's mental illness was explained to them when they were children and they were told it wasn't their fault, they did fine. It's when it's not talked about or pushed under the rug that kids are left to come to their own conclusion. And that usually means believing that mom or dad is depressed because of something they are doing. Now, again, continuing Dr. Yapko's point, realize that you can teach your child to think and act in a depressed fashion. For example, if you avoid conflict, if you isolate and don't stay connected with others, if you must do everything perfectly and shame yourself when you make a mistake, they're watching. If you feel horribly guilty for things that have nothing to do with you, or you give up trying when things get hard, they're listening. You can teach hopelessness. You can teach helplessness. You can teach excessively feeling guilty for things just by your own behavior. Going along with this with number four, talk about, again, when your children are mature enough to understand, talk about your own vulnerabilities. They'll be much more likely to realize that everyone has their strengths and everyone has their vulnerabilities, right? So maybe you're not depressed, but maybe you struggle with perfectionism. Maybe you struggle with jealousy. Maybe you struggle with worry. You can let your children know that you've got your eye on that because it is something you struggle with, that that's not necessarily a good thing in your life. Number five, and I don't know if I can stress the importance of this enough, educate yourself about your child's friends. They are having a tremendous influence on your child. It gets hard to do. I remember my own son talking about people that he knew and hung out with that I didn't know, but I tried to get to know them as much as possible. Rob would invite people over for chili, and I could get to know these friends. One of the things that was very noticeable in this series was that the adults had no clue who their kids were hanging out with. So obviously, that can be a huge problem. Number six, 
is pretty self-explanatory. It's to pay attention to what exactly is going on with your kids. If they begin to change, if the way they look changes, if they begin to not care about things, if they're losing ground in school, it could be something situational, but it also might be depression. I think sometimes parents want to say, well, being a teenager is just hard. And it is hard. Not many of us would go back to that. But wake up to the idea that it could be depression. Number seven relates to something that I've actually made my life about the last three years, what I've termed perfectly hidden depression. Not all depression looks like what we consider classic depression. Highly driven, highly perfectionistic, anxious kids who worry a lot, who want to be the best at everything, who are very involved, have lots of friends, very engaged, can also have a secret that they've been abused or traumatized in some way, that they have some kind of problem that they feel like they can't talk to anybody about, and they can fool people because they don't look depressed. They're in the cafeteria. They're seen laughing and talking with others. I know of one tragic case, and I'm sure there are others, but I've been a little bit more personally involved in one where actually a high school counselor was alerted by a peer to a 17-year-old's depression. He called him into the office. The kid said, I'm not depressed. The high school counselor thought, you know, this kid doesn't look depressed. Three weeks later, the young man hung himself. We've got to look below this surface. And if someone talks to anyone about considering taking their own life, which is what happened in that case, we've got to alert the parents. The schools have got to do that. And if a kid tells you they're thinking anything like that, you need to alert their parents. That's a secret you cannot keep. Number eight, please get off your phone. Put down your iPad. Don't allow texting during dinner. Go on device-free outings or even vacations. You've got to engage with your kids. It's so sad to me to see parents and children sitting at a table in a restaurant and they're all on their phones. Look at your own addiction to social media and try to take responsibility for the impact it may be having on your kids. Number nine is to know the teachers and get involved as you can with the school. Those teachers live in that environment with the kids every day. Now, I worked five days a week. I couldn't be homeroom mom or anything like that or at least I chose not to be. But what I did do, I had some really good friends who were mothers and fathers of my own child's friends, and they were the homeroom mom, and they were actively involved. And so we sort of bonded together in order to know what was going on in our child's environment. I made sure I called or texted and asked them those things frequently. And the 10th thing is occasionally, and with your kid's knowledge, go through their texts and maybe even check out Snapchat. Now, you got to prepare yourself. There's going to be some normal ranting and raving about your mom being a bitch or dad being just hopeless. That's very normal. You don't want to punish them for that. They're venting. But you want to look for shaming or manipulating around issues of privacy, sex, or drugs. You've got to know There's some parents that will hear this and go, I'm not going to do that to my kid. I respect their privacy too much, and I, I get that. But occasionally, it may be important, especially if you have any kind of inkling that something isn't quite right. So 
I hope you watch 13 Reasons Why. I learned something. I think we all can learn something. And whatever helps us be better parents to our kids, to me, that's the thing to do as a parent. I'm so delighted that people are writing in and actually either just telling me who they are. I I really want to know who you are as my audience. I only know where you live from the stats that are available to me. I don't know how old you are. I don't know what you're interested in. And I'd love to know that. So please email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. But here's the email from a listener today. I'm feeling shattered today, and I wanted to ask you a question. I've been following your podcasts, and each time I hear you say, write to me at Ask Dr. Margaret, I felt I wanted to, but haven't till now. I've been diagnosed with bipolar 2, and I struggle with depression. I'm on medication, which does help, but my depression still gets triggered by one thing, arguments with my partner. The argument is always the same. He gets jealous of me when I go out with other friends, especially male friends. I am by no measure a party girl or social butterfly. I may meet up with a friend once in a while. Typically, he will withdraw from me and become quiet. I typically try to give some reassurance, and sometimes that works, and other times he just continues to ignore me or become cold and hostile for a day or two. Some background on my partner. He was abandoned by his father as a young boy and as an adult had struggled with sex addiction. He's now in recovery in a 12-step program. It hurts and scares me tremendously each time he withdraws. I end up begging and pleading and feeling so utterly undignified afterward. Other times we just argue. As much as I have compassion for his fear of abandonment and the shame he suffers from, I feel hurt each time he withdraws. And it sends me into a depression for days. Eventually we make up and all is wonderful until the next episode. I propose that we go to couples counseling but he is not agreeable to it. Speaking to friends and family, I have heard just as many tell me that it's unacceptable and to leave the relationship immediately as I have heard that jealousy happens to the best of us and those instances will just blow over. What can I do given that he doesn't want to go for counseling with me or on his own? Is this a hopeless situation where the only solution is to leave? I'm hoping you'll say it's a common situation. Well, Unfortunately, I believe, sadly, it is common to have these very entrenched arguments. As you listened, you may have thought of your own relationship and some argument you tend to have over and over and over, whether it's about money, sex, kids, friends, whatever. But it does not mean that it's normal in the sense of being good in a relationship. In fact, quite the opposite. So here's my response. I'm sorry that such a difficult pattern has been created between you and this man you love. I'd rather not get into any diagnostic discussions, because this is via email. What's for certain is that the begging and pleading that you say you do isn't helpful and may only add to the drama. His abandonment issues may be getting in the way of believing he's valuable in and of himself, as the underlying dynamic in jealousy is often insecurity. However, if he won't go to counseling... You could certainly go by yourself and figure out your own part of the pattern. That's what you've got control of. And that's, again, what I tell many people they have to focus on. But back to my response. Other pragmatic kinds of suggestions are this. You might make sure he gets to know your male friends to help him with these issues. 
or you might change your own behavior just a tad. For example, going out to breakfast or lunch instead of dinner. There's something about dinner that I think we begin to think, oh, there's something else going on where if you meet somebody for breakfast, that doesn't have the emotional load somehow that having dinner does. Maybe you invite him along. So you get to see your friend, but he's there as well. But if you go to therapy and then as you change, he might likely change as well. I've often said, in fact, that I can do couples work with one person in the room. So basically, what I'm suggesting to her is that the whole begging and pleading thing only escalates things and may actually feed into his tendency to withdraw. So as she de-escalates, there's a possibility that he may as well. She also obviously needs to look at the whole idea of being depressed for days herself because of his anger. And then I continue with my response to her. What I do strongly recommend is that both of you look at the work of Julie and John Gottman, who've been researching and writing about couple dynamics that most often lead to chaos and emotional disaster. For example, the not speaking you're talking about in their terminology is called stonewalling. I think you'll find yourself with their writing and hopefully can begin to change. They also hold workshops all over the country, which might be helpful. I will include a link to the Gottman book in the show notes, but all of episode 16 talks a lot about Gottman's work, and it is pivotal to understanding the basic things that have to be right in your relationship for it to work well. Thanks so much for listening today. There are a lot of ways of getting in touch with me. My website where I blog every week is drmargaretrutherford.com. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Margaret. I've given my email several times today, but I'll do it again. Ask Dr. Margaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I know it's long. Sorry about that. I would so appreciate it if on iTunes or Stitcher, if that's how you listen, and that's where I am right now, if you would give me a rating and a review especially the reviews, give me feedback about what people like and what they'd like to see more of. That really helps me design this broadcast. You can stay anonymous, by the way, by just giving yourself a little nickname, but I'd very much appreciate it. And of course, I'd love it if you subscribe. You can subscribe here or you can do it on my website where you'll also get my weekly newsletter. And I've got to tell you about a little book that I'm excited about. It's a gift book for someone who's getting engaged, who got married, who's having an anniversary, or if you want to just give it to your partner, that would be wonderful too. It's Marriage is Not for Chickens, and it's on Amazon for $9.95. That's not too bad. It's actually the post that I wrote a couple of years ago and was on the Huffington Post. It got 200,000 likes and over 50,000 shares. So I decided to make a little book about it. My words are accompanied by, I think, gorgeous photos. So think about giving it as either a gift to yourself or to someone else you care about. Thanks again for being here with me today. I'm Dr. Margaret, and you've been listening to Self Work. Self Work.